Thanks for joining us on this week's Real Life Church Podcast. We'd love to know if God is using this ministry to bless you in some way. And if you'd like to share your story or know more about getting involved at Real Life Church, you can visit us on our website at livereallife.com today. As you can probably tell, I am not Pastor Jason. You're probably kind of sitting there like, what in the world is going on? Why, why, why is James keep getting on the stage? Like, who gave him a mic? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, no, but uh, Pastor Jason is in Mississippi today. He's preaching at his uh, overseer's church. And so he wanted to let me know that he loves each and every one of you. He will be back next Sunday kicking off a new sermon series called Transformed. And I tell you what, you do not want to miss this series. It's going to be an awesome series, especially as we, we get into the month of March and we get ready for Easter. Uh, so you are not going to want to miss that. Uh, but I just want to thank Pastor Jason for um, this opportunity. I'm very humbled to, to have the opportunity to bring uh, God's Word to you today. Um, I can't really accurately describe, you know, the impact that the Normans have had on, on my life, my family's life, and I'm sure that you can say the same. So let's take a few moments and just give Pastor Jason a huge round of applause. Just his heart for the Lord, and, and just we, we thank you, PJ, we thank you. Uh, so today I have the opportunity to close us out on our At the Table sermon series. How many of you have been absolutely ministered to by this? How many of you love this? We got five, six, okay, all right, the whole room, yeah. This has been an amazing uh, reminder for me, just the importance of community and how mission critical that is in our walks with Christ. And we learned in this sermon series that we're created for community. God has created you to connect with other people and not just connect with people, but we have to build a community. We have to build a table in our lives, people that will not only hold us accountable, but encourage us and love us. And that's really the key, especially as we're coming in this season as a church, where we're going to continue to expand in this region. How many of you know we can't do that in isolation? We need people in our lives. And so today I want to close out the series talking about how we become family, how we become family with the people around our table. And to kick this off, I'd like to show you a photo here of my sons. Uh, this is uh, Sawyer and Lucas. Um, and if you're curious with, with how we do things and how we get them to smile for pictures, I don't know if you can see uh, the fruit snacks here. <laughs> That's the key. That's the key. A little parenting tip for you, fruit snacks. Um, but no, you know, when, when I, when I uh, interact with my boys, especially Lucas here on the far left, um, I'm reminded of just his, his journey into the world. And more specifically, I remember how our table really rose up and came to us during a really difficult time during his birth, and they helped us out in a really stressful moment. So to give you a little bit of context, I'm going to go ahead and sit here. If that works. Oh, this is nice from this, from this uh, view here. So Lucas was born two weeks premature. And, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've ever had a child that is born premature, um, it's, it's incredibly stressful. There's a lot of unknowns. And we were very much caught off guard by it. He actually ended up spending time in the NICU for a few weeks because of breathing problems. And it was a moment for Caitlin and I where, you know, we just, 
we just didn't know what to do. We didn't have a playbook for that. You know, with Sawyer's birth, it was a fine birth, but this was uh, something that we just simply weren't used to. And the thing that I remember about that moment is I remember how our table reacted and rose up in that moment. Within minutes of finding out that Caitlin had gone into labor, we had one person at our table take Sawyer in, pick him up from daycare. And she actually had him spend the night at his house while we were in the hospital. And how many of you know that that was a huge help? We also had other people at our table that started making meals for us. We had um, meal trains. And night in and night out, when we were going through this journey with Lucas, we didn't have to worry about where the food was coming from. So we had people, uh, you know, get, get us everything from, from fried chicken uh, all the way to New York-style deep dish pizza, which for me is the first time I've ever had that, and it's life-changing. I don't think... <laughs> I don't think I can ever go back. Yeah, I've got, I've got uh, Brayden back there um, you know, agreeing with me. And then we had people at our table that, you know, they were NICU parents. So they understood. They understood what it was like and what we were going through. And, and, and I tell you what, they were just so encouraging with the time and effort and energy that, that they would devote to praying for my family, checking in on us, really giving insight and wisdom into what to expect even Caitlin's parents, when they found out that we were uh, in labor, they're down in Louisiana. They immediately drop everything that they're doing. They jump in a car, and they drive up 13 and a half hours north to be there for the birth of Lucas. They drive overnight. I remember talking to my father-in-law on the phone, and I was like, I have no idea how I'm even going to get a, a house key to you. We're about to deliver birth. And I remember what he said to me on the phone. He was like, James... Don't worry, I'm bringing my knife, and I'm going to break into your front door. I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. I mean, we don't, <coughs> we don't necessarily need that. Um, but that's, th that entire day, and really just not that day, but, but the weeks after that and the season that we were in, the one thing I remember about that was how our table loved us in that moment. It wasn't a surfacey, common type of love. It wasn't like, a, hey, here you're going into labor. Hashtag thoughts and prayers. They were genuine. It was deep. They sacrificed their time, effort, and energy to be with us there in that moment. And, you know, when I think about this whole idea of building a family and forming a family around your table, you really need that kind of love. You, you can't do a casual love at the table. And so today what I want to talk about is for us to become family with those around our table, we need an uncommon love. It can't be casual. This has to be a love that is so special and so unique that really the command itself can only come from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at Scripture and you look at how the church is defined, um, one of the ways that it's described is as the family of God. And, you know, when you look throughout how Scripture talks about the church, you'll notice something. You'll notice that it's not so much described about what it does as it's described about how those in the church are should to relate to one another in relationships. 
You probably have heard of the one another commands. There's over 50 one another commands, uh, all the way from honor one another, live in harmony with one another, build one another up. But all of those commands can be summed up with one powerful command, and that's to love one another. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. This is what's called the upper room discourse. This is the final night, the final hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. The next morning, uh, he's going to be crucified on a cross for our sins. And so this is a really powerful moment that we, that we tap into here. And a lot has happened up until this point here in verse 34. So Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples. And he's also identified the person in the room that is going to betray him later that evening in Judas. And here in thir- verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So there's two things I want you to note right off the bat about this powerful passage. The first thing is that this is a command, not a suggestion. Notice that Jesus commands us to love one another. He doesn't just go, hey, you know what would be great, guys? Uh, If you tried to love one another... Um, it's okay if you hit about 50% of the people you know, and, and you can hate the rest. No, no, Jesus is giving us a command to love one another. The second thing that I want you to note here is that the distinguishing mark of a disciple of Christ is love for others. So if I claim to be a child of God, then I have been called to love one another. And so I think that it's very important today um, to, to really sort of talk about what this uncommon love looks like. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about how it's defined, how Scripture defines this kind of love, and then I also want to talk about how we actually demonstrate this to those in our everyday life. So first off, let's talk about why is this important to define uncommon love? Well, I think that we need to really start and talk about love and how that's defined. And I found this interesting. There was a, um, a report that Google released. They did uh, kind of a breakdown of all of the top search terms during Valentine's Day week two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people were asking, you know, what you would expect, you know, what kind of chocolates to get, how to find things that are not assorted chocolates, or, or what's the best flowers to get, or what kind of color flowers says this sort of message. But what was, was really interesting was that They said the top-related question about love was, quote-unquote, what is love? What is love? That was the top-searched question that week. And, you know, when you type in this question, you get all kinds of results. You get a ton of self-help articles. You get a ton of uh, uh, videos explaining what love is. You even get a bunch of videos about a popular pop song from 1993 Asking us the same question, what is love? You get all kinds of stuff. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Did someone actually groan? Was someone actually like looking forward to be singing that? No, I, I can't. That's not, that's not my gift. I know. Sorry, sorry. You know, it was really interesting. I was looking at all, all of these different definitions and different takes from the world about, 
you know, what is love? And, and, and I saw so many different examples and so many different explanations. And it really sort of hit me that when it comes to how the world views love, there's great confusion about what it means to truly love others and be loved. Here's what I mean by this. I saw a lot of search results that, that had to deal with um, really love being a, a, a focus on the self. It was very much self-centered. It was very much about, you know, what have you done for me lately? And that really determines whether or not I love you. It's very much a conditional love. Then I saw a lot of different results where they said love is a collection of emotions, a collection of feelings. It's about what, what makes you feel good. And the problem with that is that, as you all know, when we talk about emotions, when we talk about feelings, first and foremost, we're talking about something that's very self-focused, right? Something that's very self-centered. And we're also talking about something in emotions and feelings that is really much not about uh, tapping into something that is consistent, tapping into something that doesn't change we're essentially basing how we love people off of how we feel. And how many of you know feelings change? They're fleeting. They're fleeting. We can't rely on our feelings. But see, this society has elevated feelings up to an idle position in life. Where this world preaches a message that says, your feelings dictate the discussion. Your feelings drive the car. And not only do they drive the car, but you are supposed to respond and react to every single emotion that you feel. In other words, they kind of like to promote a culture of impulsivity where you're constantly reacting to every single feeling and thought that comes in your head, whether it's a good feeling or a bad feeling. You know, when I think about um, an area in life where I feel like we are all focused in the moment and we're all sort of presented with the option to either react in our emotions or withhold our emotions is Interstate 75 in Dayton. <laughs> Me just saying that, I could feel like some of y'all's blood pressure started to boil up. I tell you what, I, I moved here um, seven years ago from Louisiana. And you know, Louisianians and Cajuns, you know, they're known for being crazy and they're known for you know, doing crazy things on the road. And when I got here, you know, everyone was talking to me about I-75. And they were just, they were like, you just wait until you get on I-75. And, and they were talking about how all the drivers were, were, were just crazy and you never knew what was going to happen. And at first I was like, oh, come on. I come from Louisiana, okay? We're crazy, okay? We, we eat things that you call the exterminator for here in the Midwest, Pretty sure I've seen everything. But I tell you what, when I got on I-75 for the first time, it's truly a special and unique place where my patience is always tested. So, so first off, let's talk about the interstate itself. I am convinced that I-75 is in a perpetual state of construction. There was no begin date and there's no end date. Sometimes you'd be driving and you're just at a dead standstill. There was one time I was driving on I-75 and all of a sudden all the lanes started splitting like in three different directions. And I'm like, I don't know where to go. I don't know if I'm even going the right way anymore. I don't know where this is going to lead me. It's so confusing. And then there's the drivers. And um, I tell you what, you know, down south, 
the drivers, you know, they're, they're very friendly. Uh, you know, that, that's one thing I'll say about uh, Louisianians is, you know, when they see you trying to merge in the lane, they kind of tap the brake a little bit and they let you get in the lane. Here, though, you better be ready to rock and roll because nobody's going to give you an inch. And, and, and if you delay it a little bit and if you accidentally cut them off, they start flashing their headlights at you like a strobe light, like as if that's going to like fix what just happened. But how many of you know that in that moment, we have all sort of experienced that opportunity to react with our emotions? But see, we don't have to do that, do we? I don't have to react with anger. Not all of my emotions and my feelings are good, but what the world says, the world says is the discussion starts with you. The discussion starts with you, and you have the right to not only react to your emotions, but let them drive the discussion. And this can be very dangerous when it comes to uh, defining what love is. You know, we're looking at these feelings and these emotions and things that change over time. In order to define what love is, we need to go to a source that doesn't change. We need to go to a source that's true. We need to go to a source that isn't fleeting like emotions, and that's the Word of God. How many of you are thankful today that we have a definitive standard and definition for what love is? We don't have to go to Google. We don't have to go to YouTube. We don't have to watch our cousin's Facebook Live in his basement. We don't have to worry about what the world says because we have the answers right here in the Word of God. So let's turn there. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The author here is John, and John was there the night that Jesus gave the command to love one another. In verse 7, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not, lo- whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so this is a powerful defining way of how we need to talk about love. And I want to focus on three key areas about what we learn here through Scripture about love. The first thing that I want you to note is the source of love, and that's God. In verse 7, John says, for love comes from God. And so it's important to realize right off the bat that the first step in loving others with an uncommon love is first being loved by God. And this is very important because if I get this out of order... If I start to approach the people at my table with with my own definition of what I think love is, I'm going to start to apply my standards to everyone at the table. I I may withhold love from certain people because they annoy me. Or, or I may put irrational expectations on the people around my table. And what ends up happening is every single time that we do that, we leave disappointed. The people at our table become disappointed. Why? Because we've gotten it out of order. We don't walk around with an understanding that God is the true source of love. You see, love has a source, and it's not me. 
Turn to your neighbor. Say, it's not you. Turn to your other neighbor. Say, it's not you. I don't really know a more creative turn to your neighbor than that, but I just figured, why not? Love has a source. It's not me. It's God. He is the total definition of what is loving. Also notice that it's not that we love God first. Notice that order. God loved us first. It wasn't we in our sinful state decided to love God first and then he responded to us. No, 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 no. God loved us first and we responded to him. It's very important to understand God is always first. God is never playing catch up. It all starts with God and we need to understand that when loving people that God is the source of this love. The second thing that I want you to note is the lens by which we should view this love, the perspective by which we should view people at our table. And that's the lens of the gospel. And so here in verse 9, John says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So not only do we see that, that, that love, that God is the source of love, but now we see just how deep and just how wide that love is. Now we get an explanation here in Scripture of God demonstrating that love, a love so deep, a love so wide, that he would give his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins. Now think about that. We needed that kind of rescue mission. We needed that kind of rescue. There was nothing that we could do in our own power to save ourselves from sin. It wasn't about how knowledgeable we were. It wasn't if we had a theology degree or, or, or who our friends were. We needed that kind of rescue mission. And so we need to understand that when we accept this call to love one another with an uncommon love, it will take us straight to the cross of Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you remember your rescue mission? I'm not talking about the time where you rescued someone. I'm talking about the time when God rescued you. I'm talking about the time before you knew Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. What was that like? Think about the darkness that you were uh, in. Think about the feeling of hopelessness that you experienced. The fact that in your own strength and understanding, you couldn't rescue yourself from your sin. But God in his infinite love and grace and mercy pulled you up out of that moment and he rescued you. Do you remember your rescue mission? I remember my rescue mission. I grew up in the church. I was a pastor's son. And boy, I could talk the talk. I knew exactly the right things to say. I, I even had the WWJD bracelet on, you know. I listened to DC Talk. Um, and if you're below the age of 25, I'm sorry, you probably don't get that reference. Um, you can Wikipedia it. But man, I had, I had the act down. But inside, what I ended up doing was really putting an emphasis on religion over relationship with Christ. And so what ended up happening was I began falling away. I, I, became, I, I became completely and totally empty because what I was doing was I was just simply talking the talk. I was playing the religious game. I had elevated man's opinion of me into an idle spot in my life. 
And God rescued me. God set me on a path to freedom. Do you think about your rescue mission? See, here's what happens. When you start, when you start thinking about you know, what God actually rescued you from, and you spend every single morning waking up thanking him for his gift of salvation, and it's the last thing that you think about when you, when you go to bed at night, when you're driving on I-75, and you start thinking about the love of God and the, the fact that you couldn't save yourself in your own strength, what that ends up doing is it ends up influencing your perception. It ends up influencing your lens. You start to view people through a different light. You start to view people at the grocery store in a different light. You start to view your coworkers in a different light. And it's not a lens that is self-centered, but it is a lens that is powered by the gospel. The third thing that I want you to note here about this passage is the kind of love. The kind of love. And so the Greek word for the love that's mentioned here in 1 John 4 in John chapter 13, verses 34, is the Greek word called agape. And you probably have heard this term, but this is the highest, purest form of love that exists. This is a divine kind of love. It's not something that, that humans can just sort of construct in their own strength. This is the highest, purest form of love. It's a love that isn't based on a response, and it keeps on going. So in other words... It's an unconditional love. It's, it's not about what you do for the other person or how the other person responds to you. You keep on loving. You know, Paul gives us a detailed look at the characteristics that make up this kind of love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, Paul writes, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and always loves and, and, and never fails. And so just looking at that list and the characteristics of agape, what we have to do is we really have to just kind of hold that up as a mirror. We have to look at that passage and we have to genuinely ask ourselves, does our life mirror this? You know, if you're like me and you take a look at that list, there's likely areas on that list that you need improvement on. We all need improvement. But see, when we're believers, when we're part of the family of God, we have access to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can help us with those areas on the list that we know that we fall short on. But we have to go to God and we have to ask him to help us in these areas. Just a few sort of observations from this list that I want to call out here. The first one is that it's not self-seeking. This kind of love is not self-seeking. So in other words, when it comes to the people at my table, my love is not meant to puff myself up. It's not meant to serve me. It doesn't come down to a status or a privilege. With uncommon love, there is no room for entitlement at this table. Now think about how counter that is to what we see throughout the world. It's all based on the self. It's all based on what you do. But this love, there is no entitlement. 
It also says that it keeps no record of wrongs. You know, the Greek word for this specific verse describes someone that is sort of like a bookkeeper, an intense bookkeeper, an accountant, someone that meticulously looks at each and every single detail and keeps track of it. We realize that with this, with this love, with this kind of love, we don't keep any record of wrongs. I think so many times in life, in our relationships, we keep a tally book with us or we keep a scoreboard with us. You know, when I think about a scoreboard, I think about the scoreboard that um, is used in my son's uh, basketball league. So Sawyer's five years old. And, um, you know, five-year-olds playing basketball, it's kind of what you would expect, right? A little messy, a little all over the place. You know, sometimes they'll just grab the ball, they'll start running with it, like a football. Like, they're like, we're done playing basketball, we're going to play football now. For the longest time, Sawyer was convinced that it would be easier if he just got the basketball and kicked it. I kept trying to tell him, Sawyer, you don't have to kick the ball. He's like, no, no, Dad, this is easier. It's a mess, right? You have a lot of kids that are kind of running around and um, running out of bounds. And there's not a whole lot of scoring going on. It's, it's kind of a, it's a fun mess, but it's a mess. And what they do at the scoreboard is they're kind of like, we're not, we're not going to keep score here. <laughs> we're not going to keep score. It's going to be a running clock. We're also not going to stop the clock every single time someone commits a violation or else we'll be here for 13 hours. And, you know, I feel like sometimes we have to treat our friendships like a five-year-old basketball game and unplug the scoreboard. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. If I, if I start keeping track of every single wrong that the people at my table are doing, what's going to happen? I'll eventually find a wrong. Why? Because we're human. We have a flesh. People are going to let us down. I'm going to let people down. You're going to let people down. It's going to happen. But what we see with agape love is we have to throw the scoreboard out. We have to throw the tally sheet out. And you know what happens? You know what happens? You know, not only is it great for the people at your table when you are no longer keeping track of all of their wrongs, but you know what ends up happening? It ends up setting you free as well. Because every single wrong that you're holding on to right now, it's weighing on your head. It's weighing on your thoughts. It's weighing on your emotions. And so in order to show an uncommon love, we have to be able to let that go. The other thing I want you to note here is that this love is rooted in truth. Paul says, it does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So in other words, if I truly love someone with this agape-style love, that love is not going to justify sin, but rejoice and be rooted in God's truth. And this is very, very important for us to understand because, again, this is not a love that I define. I don't define it off of emotions. I don't define it off of feelings. God's word, God's truth, it trumps my feelings. It trumps what James wants. When there's someone at my table that is annoying, you may be here in this room with someone at your table that annoys you. Don't, don't look at them, just look straight. 
And in my flesh, I want to justify it to God. I want to say, you know, God, (laughs) I know that part about loving one another, but you really have no idea his political views. They grate at me. Or you have no idea his singing voice. It's terrible. It's like a bunch of cats. I can't stand it. Or God, you have no idea what this person did to me years ago. They hurt me. They hurt me, and I just can't figure out a way to move past it. If my love is rooted in God's truth, then it's going to be a forgiving kind of love. If my love is rooted in God's truth, it's not going to justify sinful behavior, either on my part or those around my table. So that's very important to understand. Now, how do we show this uncommon love? What does this look like in our day-to-day lives? Well, I think we look at the perfect example, Jesus. And so going back to John chapter uh, 13, earlier in this chapter, we see an incredibly powerful moment of where Jesus demonstrates his love for his disciples by washing their feet. In verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So a number of things that we can take away from this passage. The first way that we can demonstrate this uncommon love is by intentionally connecting with those around our table. We see here in this story that Jesus intentionally was connected and present in a moment. Remember, he is hours away from his death on a cross. Just imagine that for a second If you knew that tomorrow morning you would lose your life, how would you respond to those around your table in the final hours of your life? We didn't see Jesus get rattled. We didn't see Jesus walk away and take a moment just to comprehend what was about to happen. He got on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples when we all know it should have been the other way around. So we intentionally connect. We demonstrate this love also by being generous, by giving it. And we see the generosity here in action from Jesus, the humbled act of washing his disciples' feet. What we have to understand about this type of love is that there's a generosity component, and generosity is love in action. We also demonstrate this love by living it out, by showing an example. In verse 15 of John chapter 13, Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus just wasn't about telling you the lesson. He wasn't just about teaching you, but he also demonstrated it for you. And he has commanded each and every believer to go out and do the same. And the last thing here is that How we show this uncommon love is not delaying it. Living with a sense of urgency and not delaying to love one another. 
So I want to show a photo here. Um, I took this photo probably a few months ago. And this is, um, this is a levee that separates the city of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I grew up, and the Mississippi River. And I spent a lot of my college years and 20s walking up and down this levee, just thinking about life. This is where I did all of my uh, thinking. And one night, about 12 years ago, it was a particularly dark time in my life. I told you I I'd lived really sort of a religious lifestyle. And what that had done over time was it really just made me empty. And I found myself in a, in a, in a moment where I was experiencing a deep and serious depression. My table had no chairs around it. I had completely isolated myself because of how ashamed I was. And above all else, I believed that God could not use me. I believed that God had given up on me. It was the darkest, lowest time in my life. And I remember uh, going up and down this levee one night and I see coming toward me this kid on a bike. He looked like he might have been 16, 17 years old. And he comes up, he passes by me. He, he kind of waves hi. I kind of kind of shrug and say hello and I still continue looking at the ground. And then about 10 minutes later, the kid on the bike turns around and he comes back my direction. And he comes up here beside me and he looks at me and he has this look on his face that he wants to tell me something. You know when you have a friend that they want to tell you something? He had that look on his face. He, he had uh, his mouth opened. You could tell he was trying to find the words to something to say, but he couldn't in the moment. So he drove off. And so about 10, 15 minutes pass away and uh, I see him for a third time coming back in my direction. Now this time he had a determined look on his face. This time it looked like he was ready to tell me something. He was not scared to do it. And he comes up in front of me. He stops. He looks me dead in the eye. And he says, I want you to know that God loves you and that he hasn't given up on you. And then after that, he drove off. And I never saw him again after that moment. But how many of you know that that kid on a bike, he understood God's love for him. He understood how deep, how wide that love went. And he also had the perspective of the gospel, the lens of the gospel. He knew what he was called to do as a believer. There wasn't a question in his mind. And he didn't delay in giving this message to a complete stranger on a levee. Now I tell you that story because there are people that we encounter in our everyday 
there's people in this room that they, they walk in the front door and they're having a levy moment. They're going through a difficult season. They're going through a painful season. They may be on their last leg. They may be completely and totally lost. No sense of direction. No sense of hope. Maybe they think that God has given up on them. But one powerful moment when the Lord speaks to you and you're viewing everything around you in the gospel, the Lord starts highlighting people for you to reach out to. It's not through your own strength. But it's through the power inside you, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit convicts you. And the Holy Spirit encourages you to just simply ask that person how they're doing. Maybe it's just to say, hey, I love you. Maybe it's to ask them, what can I do to pray for you? so important that as believers we do not miss these moments that we don't overlook these moments that we don't just view these moments as some sort of you know throwaway moment that doesn't mean anything it could mean everything in eternity I am living proof of someone that obeys the Lord in the moment and they don't have to give me a big eloquent speech all they had to do was tell me hey God hasn't given up on you and that moment was the moment that I began my journey back to God. God can use every single person in this room. And may we, may we not go through life busy with the grind and focused on things that just don't matter. Things that don't further the gospel, things that don't further the kingdom of God. May we turn our focus from those and onto these moments where we can genuinely love one another. So as we close today, you may be sitting in this room right now and you may be having a levy moment. You may be sitting there and you're hearing about this kind of love. You're hearing about this kind of love that is unconditional. You're hearing about this kind of love that's sacrificial, that the Lord would send his one and only son to die for you. And maybe you're sitting there thinking about this kind of love and, and you realize that you don't know him you realize that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. What we're gonna do in this moment is if this describes you, we're gonna to continue to do what Pastor Jason started last week. This is gonna be how we kind of view the altar calls. And so if that describes you in this room, if you don't know Jesus and you want a personal relationship with him, everyone's head is up, all the eyes are open. If you would do me a favor, and just raise up your hand right now in this moment. If this describes you, if this describes where you are in your life.
Now, church, I want you to keep your eyes open, and I want you to look around. Nobody raised their hand. You're like, well, James, well, that's awkward, isn't it? No, it's not awkward, but it should inspire us. It should inspire us to go and invite people to church. It should inspire us to invite your neighbor, to invite your coworker, to invite people that we know are far from God. You see, our goal as a church is during those altar call moments that we see a flood, a sea of hands going up, of people making the decision to trust Jesus, Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So let's all take this moment to walk out of here inspired. Especially as we continue to expand in this region and we continue to, to, to jump into this new and exciting chapter that God has us all headed on. May we walk through life with the gospel as our lens. And may we never lose sight of the moments when we can show the love of Christ to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing, unconditional love, God. that we couldn't earn in our own strength. We thank you for your gift of salvation. And Father, in this moment, may us as the body of Christ, God, may we be inspired, Father, to walk through life, God, with the gospel as our main focus, for the gospel as the motivating thing, Lord, that gets us up every morning, as the gospel as the thing that we dwell on when we go to bed, Father. Father, may we always be aware of those moments, God. Those moments, Lord, when you are calling your family to jump into action and show love to an undying world. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this church, Father. Lord, we thank you that we can love one another with a love, God, that we can't construct in our own understanding, in our own ability. So, Father, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give God a great hand clap. again for listening to our podcast. Be sure to connect with us on social media, the RLC app, and online at livereallife.com.